Welcome everyone to On The Coal Face. This podcast is sponsored by The Racing Manager and Saracen Horsefeeds and is brought to you by professionals for professionals in the thoroughbred industry. Each month we will have a special guest and we will discuss current affairs in the bloodstock business at that time of year. Today's podcast is brought to you by Saracen Horsefeeds. Saracen work closely with breeders, trainers and consigners to get the best nutritional response from their horses. We focus on helping them to reach their full genetic potential and to get that extra edge when it really counts. Our special guest this month is the best female flat trainer in the UK by Country Mile. She is currently on 45 winners with a career total of 555 winners. Her first Group 1 winner was a horse called Accidental Agent, named after a very special man. As we approach Armistice Day, this podcast will take on a more historical journey and our family's part in history. We welcome Eve Johnson Horton and her mother Gay. Thank you both very much for joining us. No problem. Hi there. Um, as the season comes to a close, you must be very uh, proud of what you and your team have done this year and, and what you've achieved. Yeah, we've had a really good season. We've had um, a few group winners and really a uh, good number of winners. And uh, yeah, it's gone really, really well. And um, the team have done really well. I've got a great backup staff and uh, it's been a fantastic season all round. But you've got two very exciting two-year-olds to look forward to, Mr. Sketch and Indian Run, haven't you? Yeah, absolutely. So Indian Run won the Acom, um, and then he found the ground against him in the Dewhurst, but he's a big raw horse. He'll be lovely for next year. And Mr. Sketch um, was very impressive in a maiden at Salisbury, and then was second um, in a group two at Newbury. So, yeah, he's they're both... Really big raw horses that would lot better to come, I think. So presumably we will have guinea subjectives with both. Uh, possibly, yes. Um, we haven't got that far. Luckily, we're only in November, so I don't need to worry about that. But hey, what a nice problem to have! I mean, training horses of this calibre is what every trainer aspires to. Was there above-average talent? Very obvious at home. Um, yeah, funnily enough, they're both quite late in so um early doors i had, didn't have i kept looking at the oh i haven't got anything that's a really standout two roles um but they both came in and i loved them both from the moment they arrived yeah and did they work to a very high standard at home before they ever ran um i don't do any work off the bridle here we're very much on the bridle um they always everything we asked them always pleased me in their work but you know i don't do anything i I don't think you win any gallop, you know, winning any races at home. So we don't um, do too much, ask too many questions here. But they're always very pleasing, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Mr Sketch is quite a big horse, isn't he, from what I understand? Yeah, he is big. He is, well, he was a big two-year-old. He's just growing into himself now. He doesn't look nearly as big now. He's, you know, everything's sort of evening up quite well. So how would you compare these two with your previous good horses from previous seasons? Um, I think they're both very nice horses. I think um, they look like they can probably go on a bit more than some of the two-year-olds I've had previously. They've been, you know, they've definitely got more potential than some of the others I've had. Although um, 
I mean, Jumbie's always done really well and kept on winning group races every year. So, yeah, I mean, I'd say that they, they were pretty much, uh, you know, above the others, maybe. Interesting. I mean, producing above-average horses like this must help encourage new owners to the yard, does it? Um, hopefully, yes. Um, you know, I've seen, <laughs> I seem to have got a few more horses coming into the yard this year. So it's just trying to, you know, I don't want to have a map of horses. I don't know how people train 200. I'm in awe of them for doing it. I couldn't. Um, but I like to up the quality all the time. And I've got, I train some lovely people. I've had some really nice people want to send me horses as well. So, yeah, it's really good. So how many horses did you have in your books this season? I think um, we probably had about 90 in total, but I've only got 75 boxes, so I never had more than 75 in the yard. Yeah, that's a considerable number of horses to be training. Um, plenty, plenty for me. Yeah, exactly. And have Wolfland and Bronte sent you more horses? Uh, not yet. So it's plenty of time for that to happen, yeah. Hopefully, hopefully, we'll yeah. see. Yeah. And so would you say your style of training, does it suit a particular type of horse or a particular type of owner? Um, I don't know. I I don't think it suits a particular type of horse, but because we don't train in a centre, it's very good. Um, we can keep horses pretty well chilled here um, and they have a nice relaxing time. Um, and yeah, I think I don't think that suit any particular owners, but just... Yeah, the one I'd suit the owners that let get let me get on and train. I think really. Yeah, which is always the best way around. I mean, at the start of each season, do you set yourself a goal? I want to achieve X number of winners and X amount of prize money. Um, every year, I want to train a Group winner and a Royal Ascot winner, um, and I've done one or the other most years. Um, obviously, I, we've had three Group winners this year, and you know, I'd love a Group One winner. And one, uh, I would love to win a classic. That's what I'd really yeah. like. Yeah, have that on your CV would be, CV yeah. would be very special, wouldn't it? And so, I mean, is there one particular race that you'd most like to win? No, not no. really. No. no, any group one win, any group, any group one. one would be good. <laughs> yeah. And do you have a favourite race course you might like, most like to have runners on? I love Newbury, mainly because it's just down the road. And it's a lovely, fat, flat galloping track. Um, my horses run well there. Um, I like Salisbury. I think it's a really well-run independent track. Um, basically, anything that's within an hour of home, I prefer. Yeah, very sensible. And as, and as a little girl growing up, did you always want to be a racehorse trainer? No. Never? <laughs> no. I never thought I would be, but it seems I sort of fell into it, really. Um, I suddenly discovered I wasn't very intelligent. I couldn't do anything else. So here we are. But following in your father's footsteps must seem a tough act to follow. I and mean, he trained a thousand winners. I know he trained. He he was a brilliant trainer, um, and it was a very tough act to follow. But you know, having said that, I had the infrastructure here. Not many horses to take over when I took over. I think we were down to about fifteen or sixteen, but a, a great infrastructure. So. You know, and a good man to follow and still can give me very good advice. I bet, I bet. I mean, did you ever imagine you'd be this successful? Oh, no, I don't know. I just thought I'd just bumble along. And I still am bumbling along, really. Well, you've gone from less than 20 horses 
to 90 on your books, that is some achievement by yeah. any standards. I mean, as an outside looking on, there seems to be two factors which have helped your success. Having the ultimate team player, Charles Bishop, riding a few, and Anthony Bromley helping you source new talent every year. Would you agree with that? Um, yeah, yes and no. I mean, it's great. Bromley is brilliant. I get on. Uh, Dad and I always used to bowl the earlings together, but um, Dad can't get a bat so much. So that's when I started exactly. using it. And, yeah. and um, we get on particularly well. Um, apart from anything else, we, we have a good laugh at the sales and we have a few few hiccups about what I'm going to pay for something and what he thinks is worth. Sometimes we have a bit of a standoff about whether we're going to bid or not, but it always works out in the end. Um, and he knows sort of also I like to train and I can train. And um, he sort of knows which owners will suit which horses. So, yes, it, that's worked really, really well. Unfortunately, he's got rather popular in the flat game now. It seems to be buying for other lots of people. Um, and Charlie's a very good team player. Yeah, he's a good... he's. He's not my stable jockey per se, but he rides a lot of my horses and he comes and rides work. And I've got a very good stable of lesser known jockeys that uh, ride work for me and ride in races like George Downing, George Adobe. You know, they're, they're really good team players. I mean, having that consistency must be one great for your team and morale and also nice for your owners. Yeah, I mean, not every owner... A lot of owners have their own ideas about jockeys, and that's absolutely fine. As I always say, he who, pay, he who pays the piper pulls the tune. Um, so, but yeah, consistency is good. I like consistency. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, it seems to be a common thread with both Ant and Charles. They are very consistent and very good human beings to work with. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I mean, every year, do you have a particular year that you look forward to training? Mm, I don't know. I don't know. It, I don't really know until March. And then I, in March, we start just um, cantering them in big bunches. And um, the ones that are more forward go forward and the ones that are less forward don't go quite as fast. And they sort themselves out and then it starts to get exciting. Yeah. So, so by the end of March, that's when you're getting really keen on a horse. Yeah, and you know which ones are more forward and which ones aren't. And that is not, people say, oh, you must gallop them a lot. We don't gallop them, but they canter in big bunches. Uh, right. And that, that works out. Yeah. So when you say big bunches, I mean five or ten? or Ten. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Up the grass. Ten on the grass. Yeah. At the end of the day, they're a herd animal and they're going to be racing as a herd, aren't they? Absolutely. That's, that's what I believe. Anyway, it's, it works for us. Yeah. I mean, do you think starting out as a female in racing was way harder than it should have been? Uh, probably. I mean, I don't know that it was necessarily for me, but it certainly was for my grandmother. I mean, she wasn't allowed to train. Um, That's right. Yeah. She was the first lady member of the jockey club, and that was only in 1977. I mean, that's really poor, isn't it? That's not that long ago. It's yeah. not that long ago, and she was the first female member of the Jockey Club. And that's when the Jockey Club were like the BHA, they were in power. Of, yeah. They held the parent racing, and, you know, it, it's taken a long time. But I think we're getting there now. I do. So, I really do. so you'd say it's easier now, would you? Oh, God, I think so. Hugely. The Racing Manager is a definitive online platform for managing and enjoying racehorse ownership. 
I, along with 8,500 other users across the UK, Ireland, France and the US, have used the platform to save managers time while enhancing the ownership experience. Are you investing in your owners? I mean, there's a huge amount of goodwill behind you and everyone wants you to do well, which in a competitive business is fairly unusual. This is clearly... I'm not sure it's true, but... It is totally true. And this is clearly because of the person that you are. And a lot of the credit for that must come from mum and dad. Well, I hope so. They they brought me up well, haven't you, mum? Dragged me up anyway. Dragged as best we could. Well, whatever you did, it's worked. Now, we all know of food success and your granny Helen was a pioneer as the first female trainer in this country. But the real hero in your family is grandpa, Major John Goldsmith, DSO. And Gay is going to tell us all about him. Over to you, Mum. Yeah, well, he was an amazing man, actually. Um, He wore his fame very lightly. It was very, I mean, all the stories that came out in the book, I knew bits and pieces of them before they came out, but I couldn't sort of, I couldn't have slung them together. And he, you know, he was amazing. Clarify a point. So he was basically behind enemy lines in France, uh, training the French resistance in guerrilla warfare. Is that the idea? Yes, that was the third time he went out. Or the, yes. Um, but he, he was down at, well, actually was sunning himself on the beach in Marseille, but that's not quite true. It's because he wanted to look like a native and he didn't. He arrived there looking like a white Englishman. <laughs> and he wanted to meld in. He'd been born and brought up in France, so he spoke the lingo properly. I mean, didn't he train in France at one stage? No, he didn't. He came over and trained in England when he was very I mean, young. played polo. I- in France, and his father ran a um, polo livery yard in Paris. Yeah. And, and my understanding is he wasn't allowed to join the RAL, RAF or the British Army because he was 31 years old. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yes, he was allowed to teach people to drive tank, tanks on Salisbury Plain and also drive Queen Mary vehicles, which were those very long ones. Yeah. He thought that was, um, but he thought that was awfully boring. And so he ended up the... in France being a special, a secret agent behind enemy lines. Yes. If he didn't get dropped in, though, he got sailed in by boat. And I always thought, well, that wasn't too too bad. And then I realised it was rather a long way, and he hates boats. <laughs> <laughs> and am I right in saying his code name was Valentine? Yes, or Valentin. Valentin. Right. Yeah. Which I think it's rather good. Um, and somewhere along the lot on the way, he earned a quad de guerre. Is that correct? That is correct. That's taking a German, um, a French general across the Pyrenees. Can you uh, can you tell us about that story? Well, he took him. I don't know. He, he sort of picked him up somewhere in the south of France, like Marseille or somewhere there, and they went by train. Why they didn't get picked up, I have no idea to um, Toulouse, and then they went over the mountains there. They found a guide. I mean, it's extraordinary. I don't know how they managed it. 
Amazing, yeah. I don't and know how he did. And at some stage he was captured by the Gestapo, wasn't he? Yeah, that was when he was in Paris. And how did he escape? Well, he climbed out of a bathroom window and As went along. <laughs> went down, went down, down a, a story or to the next one. I'm not really quite sure. As he had vertigo, it was quite interesting. He managed to do that, but anyhow, he did. And then he walked, went out, walked down the stairs and walked out of the front door. And, and nobody questioned him at any stage? Um, apparently not. Yeah. I'm not sure. He, I, I suspect he might have been a bit more circumspect about how many people saw him. But he likes to tell the story in a rather cavalier, liked to tell the story in a rather cavalier fashion. But he was clearly quite a hero. Mm -hmm. Yes, he was. And he found a French policeman and said, if, if you love your country, you'll give me some money. Because he needed some money to go on the metro to get to his safe house. So for World War II, was he in France the whole time? No, he was back and forth. He didn't... He, didn't go to France until about 1942 or three, I don't think. Okay, okay. Um, the war was sort of, well, it, it takes quite a long time to train these operatives. Yes, exactly. Quite tough. And yeah. then, it, you know, and he, he was teaching people to drive tanks for a bit. I'm not quite sure why, but anyhow, they needed someone. Um, and you, you have a relative that was um, a bit of a hero in the war as well, don't you? Well, it's uh, more First World War. So my great-great-uncle was a gentleman called Reverend David Railton, MC. And he was the author of the idea of the unknown warrior. Wow. He was in, yeah, he was in the frontline trenches at Ypres Salient, Vimy Ridge... Highwood and the Somme region. Wow. And, yeah, and as an army padre, it was his job to maintain the morale of the troops in the frontline trenches. And it was his job in quieter moments to erect a temporary altar in the trenches and give Holy Communion to anyone who wanted it. On each occasion, he would place his Union Jack, which he carried with him, over the altar and then placed two candlesticks, which he carried with him all the time. It was his job to perform burial services the next day for all the soldiers who had lost their lives. Oh, how grim. Yeah. On each occasion, he placed his Union Jack over the coffin and performed the burial service. <laughs> it was his job to be present at firing squads for deserters knowing that on many occasions the soldier was not a coward, but merely a man suffering from shell shock and trauma. It was his job, following the dreadful battle of High Wood, to clear the battlefield of bodies. This was one of the most awful and horrific battles in our history, and it is estimated that 6,000 British troops were killed here. To perform this undertaking must have taken the heart and soul of any of any human being. You'd think, you'd think. You it's can't all... anything more dreadful, can you? No, no. Yeah. It was um... at the back of the Somme, he was awarded the MC, 
which, as you know, is the second highest medal for bravery after the VC. But David wasn't a regular soldier. He was a clergyman, which is even more unique. It was his job to write to the families of soldiers he'd buried the previous day. We can only guess how many letters he wrote. Oh, that's dreadful. Yeah. When he came home, like so many that had survived, he never ever spoke of the horrors that he'd seen or even mention of his MC. Then at the end of the war, he wrote to the Dean of Westminster with his suggestion of the tomb and of, of the unknown warrior and the donation of his flag that he used. It took some time before it was approved, but eventually on the 11th of November, 1920, at 10.45, David was part of the procession to the tomb of the unknown warrior, and he handed over his flag to Field Marshal Earl Haig, who in turn handed it to the Dean of Westminster. That's wonderful. Yeah, the flag stayed at the foot of the tomb for some time, after it was hung over the tomb until 1953, when Queen Elizabeth II was crowned and it was moved to St George's Chapel, which is just next door. David never wanted credit, adulation or accolades, but his simple idea has been copied by so many countries throughout the world. Amazing. Quite an extraordinary story, isn't it? Mm. It is. Extraordinary. And it's nice to have a bit of background behind the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier because you just, everyone knows about it, but you didn't, don't know any background to it. So it's very interesting. It's only as a result of the sacrifices of many people like Reverend David Railton, MC, and Major John Goldsmith, DSO, that we can live in this green and pleasant land in the way in which we choose. I know, aren't we very lucky? Aren't we just? I mean, they did, they did. They did their bit, didn't they? They certainly did. And it, it, the First World War was just attritional. Yeah. I mean, it, was, it wiped out whole villages of men. Yeah. And yeah. only women were left. I mean, it was just appalling. And whole estates and whole towns. It wasn't the same sort of mass bombing or anything like that, but, oh, it was terrible. Mm. Yeah. Apparently, when they, when they ceasefire came, they were given the order to retreat at 10 o'clock, and then at 11 o'clock they were given the order to ceasefire, and it was a very, very foggy day, and the silence was oppressive after four and a half years of bombardment, constant gunfire on both sides. It's extraordinary. Yeah, very, very odd times. Yeah, yeah. And, and if you go to some of those cemeteries now in Flanders Fields, the one thing that you notice most is the silence. Um, and that's beautifully kept. Yeah, and, and birdsong as well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Eve and Gay, and thank you to those who made the ultimate, sac ultimate sacrifice. Absolutely. Precisely. Thank you. Thanks, all. Thank you both. Okay. Thank you for listening to another episode of On the Coal Face. 
You can listen to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud.